change is the only constant in every aspect of our lives, be it how we work, how we live, how we learn. It forces us to make the right decisions without the choice of looking back at history and conventions to know what's right. I am Vikram Baskaran, and this is Chargebee's Champions of Change podcast, where we talk to changemakers who've walked before us, built businesses on first principles, and unearthed their tips and tricks to identify change and turn that into opportunity. Remember, you're just one decision away from being a change maker. This session, we're talking about marketing hacks with Bill Masaido's The Billion Dollar Marketing Playbook from the man who helped build Slack, Zendesk, and Salesforce. Bill, I think I know you enough to say this. You're a quirky guy. That's evident from the kind of marketing culture that you've created at Slack and Zendesk. How do you think the strategy has worked from a B2B perspective? Because, you know, generally when we talk about B2B and B2B marketing, we try to think about getting all suited up and looking up market. And you've been quite the opposite. So how, in your opinion, should B2B businesses look at their brand? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, Excited to be here as always. And, you know, I think that... B2B brands have an opportunity. You know, they have an opportunity to differentiate, to be a little different. And it's funny because I think most of the B2B companies I've been a part of, we were always nervous. There was always someone in the room that was like, you know, we're moving up market. Can we have, to have a fun and quirky brand? Or like, I don't know if we're going to be able to sell to the mid-market. And then we would sell to the mid-market. And then we'd be like, you know, we're moving into the enterprise. I don't know if we can have a fun and quirky brand. And then we get a seven-figure deal or an eight-figure deal. And I get that there's this worry, you know, that people, you know, when you're trying fun and quirky, a brand that has some personality. But in my experience, like that never holds true. And I, I think at the end of the day, like we're all, we're all humans. We're all people, right? Like we're all individuals, right? And it's not like we, we love... B2C brands that are quirky, but we hate if they're, you know, have some personality on the B2B side. We're just people, right? And you tend to love brands. And I think personally, you have a much more closer connection if a brand is a little more unique and does maybe make you laugh or smile or software that's just fun to use, right? And it's not just painful and <laughs> and sterile and black and white, like 90% of B2B software is, right? You stand out. And if you're in a space that's pretty crowded, you know, you've got to do things that are going to help you make you stand out and develop a better emotional connection. So I think it has worked out, but I get why a lot of people are a little nervous about it. But in my experience, it hasn't held true. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree, right? Like when you when you talk about selling uh, to a B2B business, right? I mean, when, when you're selling to a business and you suddenly imagine that you're selling to a building, you're you're selling to an office. No, you're not. You're selling to a person, right? You're like, no, but we sell to finance guys. And what, finance guys don't deserve a laugh? Your yeah. finance guy, like, <laughs> I'm sure he watches Saturday cartoons just as much as you and I do. So it's kind of like, it's. I, 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 th- I think there's, there's this, uh, you said it best when you said you're selling to humans. You're selling yeah. to people. And when we forget the person, the human from the marketing, it's just, I don't know, it's just... Boring. Can I tell you a funny story? As long as we're trying to get out of boring. All right. So I'm at Zendesk and we're putting together this campaign. And we decide to go with like an old style, like when Harry met Sally and they're interviewing this old couple. You know, they're sitting on like their this couch at their old house and they're just talking about the relationship, right? This older couple. And we made it so like, you know, the the gentleman was he was supposed to represent like businesses. 
and the wife was supposed to represent consumers. And so they're going back and forth and she's like, yeah, he has terrible service. And I reached out to him and he didn't respond back and all this stuff. And so they're going back and forth. That's kind of funny and cute. And at the very end, like the last line is, you know, they're talking and she's like, I like it when he gives me the business. <laughs> and it was, and I remember I laughed when I heard that line. And, but we had a discussion, right, in an exec table, you know, of all the execs. And they were like, oh, I don't know if we can put that in. Like, is that <laughs> we pushed it too far? And I think we ended up did keeping it in. And I remember to this day now when like we show that it's the one thing that everybody laughs at, right? It's the one kind of area that people have some fun with. So I think sometimes like, you know, it's okay. Like try it out. You know, when people laugh or smile, they transfer that positive emotion onto your brand. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And 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 you've maintained that that uh, that kind of truth at Slack, obviously. I think everybody knows that. I, I think Slack was, uh, I don't know if Slack was a pioneer, but Slack was one of those those first brands that I remember that actually used the loading screen to make you laugh <laughs> when 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 you open the app. And it's like, ah, that was, that was I didn't expect that. Right? <laughs> like, I, I think one of the best ways that you've constantly been championing change, like even in this conversation, when, when you talk about selling to the human, is by putting the focus on the customer, the customer as an individual so can, can, uh, can you give me some examples of customer obsession and how you've captured that opportunity? Yeah, I do think it's important, right? And look, I've, I've bought a lot of software in my life, you know, as a consumer and as a CMO or CRO. And I'll say this, like, it's a pretty crappy experience. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, this company's interesting. You know, what do they do? Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> you want to click on that video on what we do? No, no, no. You got to fill out a giant form. It's like, uh, all right, fine. I fill out my form. And then I'm like harassed immediately. Are you ready to buy? Are you ready to buy? Can you buy us? Are you, please buy us, right? Are you ready to buy? Like, I just learned about it. I don't even, I don't even know what you do yet, right? I'm still learning. And, you know, when you do buy, Everyone kind of runs away, you know, and all the all my salespeople that were, you know, buying me steak dinners and saying all these nice things like disperse and I'm assigned one one thousandth of a customer success person, you know, and if I do need help, the support link is like buried on the website eight pages down. And yet, you know, we want to we all want to grow fast and we're like, oh, you know, we want to get more people to recommend us like, well, of course, they're not going to recommend you like you just like polluted and gave them a horrible experience. And so, I, you know, to me, like, I just have always believed the brand is some of all these little interactions that people have with you and you want to delight them. And so, you know, things that I've tried to do differently is one, incentivize people in your org to give delightful experiences, right? Like if, if you just use the same old, same old SaaS metrics, funnel metrics, you know, form completes, leads, MQLs, SQLs, pipeline, closed deals, you're going to incentivize the marketing team to gate everything. You're going to incentivize the sales team to get people to buy as much as they can, even if it's not the right plan or even if it's not good for them. You're going to incentivize support teams to spend as little as possible. And you're going to incentivize success teams to just be sales teams, right? They're not going to actually help you be successful. They're just going to try to get you to buy more stuff. So I think like it's interesting, maybe re-examine like, hey, what could you do there, right? Like, you know, could you start to implement more experience-based metrics, maybe a net promoter score, maybe a CSAT? maybe a page load time, right? To start to incentivize your teams. And so one thing we did differently at, at Slack, for instance, is when someone would buy from us a bigger company, we would go back and ask that company, like, hey, you're working with Alexandra, you know, how courteous was she? 
you know, how helpful was she? How responsive was she? You know, how knowledgeable was she? We, we wanted to, could we incentivize our team members to act in a way that was, I don't know, more human, you know, just like nicer <laughs> because you gotta remember too, SAS isn't this like, you know, you're selling this big product and you get to run away. Like SAS, you usually make your revenue off of recurring subscription, right? So you got to make sure people don't attrit. And also most SaaS companies, like half your revenue is going to be from add and upgrade expansion, you know, and if you're really fast growing, most of your growth comes from people recommending you. So really like from an, a long-term company standpoint, there should be every incentive in the world to go, we should be taking a more experience-based focus. But, you know, that's a more long-term viewpoint. And it's hard. The, the short-term quarterly pressures, I think, push people to these traditional funnel metrics. But, that, you know, that's one of the things we try to do is think about, like, incentive metrics, even like comp structure, right? Like, as opposed to tying comp structure to traditional SaaS funnel metrics, what if you tied comp structure to experience-based metrics, right? Like, how would everyone act differently? And I think those are just fun things. You know, we haven't figured it out, but I feel like there's a revolution happening there for people that want to kind of embrace that philosophy and implement it company-wide. Yeah. And like when I, when I think about marketing and when, when I talk to other marketers as well, and I think we've had this conversation too, right? There's, there's this part of, as a marketer, what's your purpose? And it comes down to, well, MQLs, pipeline. No, 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 no. That's what you do. What's your purpose? And your purpose as a marketer is always making people happy, making people smile. Yeah. If you focus, if you optimize for making people happy, you will get MQLs. You will get like your funnel metrics would move. But if you focused on your funnel metrics, maybe on the short term, they would move. But sure. sooner or later, if that's all you obsess about, you're going to have a pretty soulless experience. Yeah, totally. And you've been a pretty strong advocate of the customer's voice, and which is, which is kind of, you wouldn't expect that out of a traditional marketer to be the voice of the customer. But there's also this other part, this Apple philosophy of the customer doesn't always know what they want. So when it comes to delighting customers, how do you create a balance between what the customers want and giving them something that they aren't thinking about, but would be something that, you know, once they experience it, they can't live without it either? Yeah, I think it is. It's, you know, you said it right. It has to be a balance there. Right. And, and I see companies swing too far one way or the other. I think, you know, and part of this is this SaaS revolution, right? Where in the past, before SaaS or cloud existed, you sold to one person. It was the CIO and it was top down. And it didn't really matter if the software was helpful or useful or had a good experience for the users. It just was like, can you sell to the CIO? That's all that matters, right? And then SaaS comes along and all of a sudden, like you're selling directly to individual users and anyone can start using your product and download it and start using it or just log in. And so I think like that's caused this revolution where you do have to think about that experience, you know, from a design standpoint, you know, ultimately, I think some of the best products come out out of pain, right? Like people that are just in a lot of pain and someone says, you know what, I'm going to solve that pain. And maybe they do it in a way that a user hadn't asked about before, but it stems from, you know, kind of listening to your inner pain and understanding there's friction there, right? And I mean, I remember this is a while back, but I'm old enough, I admit, I hate to admit to say that I used to take taxis, you know, <laughs> to the airport. <laughs> and I remember, you know, I lived in North Beach in San Francisco and, you know, occasionally be flying out for business and I would call a taxi. I try to call a taxi, right? And the first one wouldn't answer. The second one would answer, but I'd be like, well, my flight's leaving at this time. Like, when are they going to be here? And like, well, I don't know, we'll send one out, right? And so 
yeah, I'm okay. And so I'm waiting, I'm waiting. No one's here. I'm getting a little nervous now, right? Because my, you know, I got to catch my flight. Should I call another taxi service? Well, I don't want to screw, you know, the taxi driver and have them miss their money. And then they finally do arrive, you know, and maybe the taxi is a little stinky or it's just like disorganized and I'm like, okay, whatever. And then like, they're taking some crazy routes and I'm like, I don't know where you're going. And then I'm like freaking out, like, wait, did I bring enough cash? I I don't even know if they'll even accept credit card, right? Like, and, you know, I finally get there, but like, that was a pretty miserable experience. But at the same time, like, I didn't realize it was miserable. I kind of accepted it. Like, well, it's just the normal, right? Like, this is what you just have to go through. And I think someone that kind of came out and said, you know, let's do this like peer-to-peer you know, marketplace of people coming in and we'll show them real-time updates. Like, obviously, I, that's not what I was asking for, right? Or if someone said, hey, make taxis better, I don't know what I would have said. But, you know, at the same point, like it originated from that pain, from a, a true user's pain. And I think like that to me is the balance, you know? Sometimes where I think companies run into a little bit of trouble is when they just build out a feature saying, go, this is going to be really cool. They're going to love it, right? But it wasn't really sourced in pain. It was more sourced in like, we just think this is neat or something that they could do. And, and maybe that's the delineation there. Yeah, I, I also think sometimes it's when we were also talking about quirkiness earlier, right? There's, there's this one little piece of, I think, I think there's this very strong line between quirky and silly. Yes. Silly is annoying. Quirky is, wow, you get me. Like, how do you have this uncanny ability? And I think one of the best examples of that to me is as a marketer, MailChimp, at least in one of their earlier uh, UIs, where, you know, as a marketer, I've probably sent a billion emails, newsletters, and all of that stuff. And still, every time I send out, like one second before I send out that email, you know, I get this sudden pang of panic. I have to go in and, and make sure that all totally. the is okay and everything. So on MailChimp, just before you hit the send button, you'd ha- you'd have this little monkey finger that comes in and it's like almost hitting that button and it's sweating all. And I'd be like, all right, you know what? This wasn't just a bunch of engineers who don't know my life. That's just you know. Doing this random piece of software, this is this is built by someone who gets me. Yes. Right. Yes. And it's like I think I think when we talk about you know the things that of course I didn't ask for it, I didn't ask for a monkey that's sweating and that's like, but it just makes you go, wow, these guys these guys know me at least as well as I know myself, maybe a little better. Totally. And by the way, anyone who has ever sent out like a newsletter or a big distribution list totally gets that i would do the same thing right like i'd be there and i'd be like oh because you know once it's out it's out and you can't do anything and you know if you made some massive typo everyone's gonna hear about it. it's very nerve-wracking right like that's one of the most nerve-wracking experiences and and i agree you know i love the mailchimp team and ben and you know to kind of tap into that and have a little fun with it is so powerful right and you know that's what i think you know, that helps you grow. More people are going to recommend you and tell that story or they're going to attrit less because they, you know, they feel like, you know, they've got a good connection and it's such a powerful way to, to market and go to market. I love that story. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when we, uh, when, when we talk about Slack and HipChat, right. And I remember developers back in the day were like, ah, you know what, Slack, it's just a good looking HipChat. And everybody moved to Slack and nobody used HipChat. And I think the difference there was it, it, it was just pretty and pretty, not just on the eyes, but pretty in terms of the experience. It just made you smile and laugh at the right points. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it was a, it was a feature difference that made it. Nah, I, you know, I think in a good way over time, you know, you're probably going to get feature parity, 
in SaaS, right? There's just too many VCs. There's too much money out there. And there's, you're always going to have, you know, five to 10 competitors in a space that's big, right? Because VCs want to try to take advantage of that. And so it's hard. I think it's hard to win on feature parity, you know, hard to win on just pure product. But I think nine out of 10 B2B companies are, that's all they think about. It's just features, right? Like I need to have this feature. We have this feature, this feature. And maybe one out of 10 is thinking about how do we kind of make this a fun, delightful moment, right? Like, hey, I get that. Everybody's a little nervous to hit that send button. What can we do that was kind of fun there, right? And, you know, and there's a lot of reasons for that, right? I think like an, like maybe an older mindset. Also, you know, I would argue org design. I mean, as weird as it sounds, like when you get to be a certain size, you know, 300, 400 people, and you have a totally separate development org, which is completely separated from marketing, and they have different goals and different metrics, and they're not even running into each other in the elevator anymore, or whatever it is, they're on a different floor, or we're all virtual, they don't even talk together at all, then it's really hard because the developer, you know, I love developers, but, you know, sometimes that's just not their DNA, right? Their DNA is to put the OK button, right? <laughs> and program next, whereas like, a designer or marketer or someone that just kind of has that DNA is going to be like, whoa, 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 like, let's think about like, you know, what's the tone and voice we're going to use here? And what could we do that was fun, fun, but they can't program it, right? So you have these, you know, these two teams that together they could do amazing things, but separated, really difficult, right? And I think that's a, that's another really interesting thing to explore. I think for SaaS companies down the road is just you know, how do they, again, the metrics, how do they organize these teams? How do they incentivize it? Because the traditional structure will yield you zero delightful moments. <laughs> if you just take the traditional plan, you will look like a boring, sterile software. You'll never delight people. And then you'll be like, why are my competitors getting market share or whatever it is, right? Because of course, you just look like everybody else. And I think, I think, um, that's that 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 also drives into the DNA of you know you have been part of three organizations that have become category creators Zendesk, Salesforce, and Slack. And what's interesting is none of these three were actually category creators. CRM existed before Salesforce, Helpdesk existed before Zendesk, Chat Software existed for like eons before Slack, and yet these three are still category creators. So what goes under the hood? How does yeah. How do you become a category creator in a category that's already been created? What's your magic? Yeah, I remember my, my first startup, you know, I was part of right out of college. I helped co-found, you know, we were all remote and we were all chatting back and forth. You know, it was just, that's what we did, right? And lots of people were doing customer support software before Zendesk. And, you know, in, in some ways like these have, like you said, they've existed for a long time. I do think like, you know, one commonality for a company to come out ahead or really start to build a, a massive category, just like a lot of dollars is to have a larger mission behind it. You know, and I know for Salesforce, this one of the things I learned with Mark, uh, Mark Benioff, the CEO, he was really brilliant about that. When, when he would go on the road and talk, whether it was to customers or analysts or press, he wouldn't go in and go, hey, you know, we sell sales automation software and we have this cool forecasting module, right? They all would have fallen asleep or moved away. He would, he would find a mission, a larger mission that he was passionate about. And for him, it was in the early days was the end of software. He's like, look, traditional software sucks. Like it's on-prem, you have all these maintenance fees, it, you know, it has to be installed and we have this new model, like no software. He did like the little Ghostbuster logo. And, you know, people loved that and reacted to it and wanted to be part of that movement. And I think that's, 
that's a big thing, right? And and then when you throw in, you know, kind of a fun, quirky underdog brand, you know, and Mark was very intentional to always kind of position ourselves against the bigger company. So it was always like we were the underdog against Microsoft or we were the underdog against Oracle, right? And we have this new movement and, you know, come join us, right? And it got people excited, right? And at the end of the day, it wasn't just sales pipeline forecasting, you know, for managers. It was people that got excited that wanted to be part of something larger. And and they rallied behind that, you know? And, and I think that's a really interesting way is to kind of, you know, ask yourself with whatever company you're part of, like, hey, do we have that mission? You know, are people excited to be behind this mission? Is it more than just features? And, and that might be one trick. Because like you said, like all those three companies had, you know, existing solutions before them, but managed to kind of break out. And I, I, I think that might've been a key part of it. Okay. Now we're going to have a whole bunch of people that's going to hire a consultant and start building out a mission statement. <laughs> How do you come up with that, that purpose? Do you, do you have a formula to come up with the purpose? I don't know. That's, that's a hard one. I mean, I think it's got to be, you know, unique, emotional, you know, that's a good litmus test. Hey, would, would a non-employee be really amped about this? I think, you know, Tesla's a good example, you know, of a lot of people you know, I don't think they always just buy them because, hey, they have cool doors or the science of the car. They believe largely in that movement, right? To make the earth better, to move over to electric vehicles or, you know, their solar roofs. It's like, hey, this is more a larger part. Like we want to save the earth. We want to be part of something special. And, you know, like, how do you do that? I don't know. I just know it's got to be emotional. People have to be able to react to it. They want to follow it. It was not like when we would make like a lot of our outbound commercials at Slack you know, my ultimate litmus test was I would just try to find someone that had no idea what we did. I'd literally find someone on the street. I'd pull up my mobile phone and go, hey, will you watch this ad real quick, right? And then I just watch them. Like, how do they react to it? Do they even get what we do? Are they are they laughing? Is it a positive emotion? Like, that's the litmus test. And I think sometimes, you know, mission statements can kind of get a little dry. Like, we're the next generation company transforming the XYZ sector through disruptive means. And you're like... I get what that is, and I don't really have an emotional connection to it. So I don't know. I don't. I don't think I've definitely cracked the the wheelhouse there. But I do think, like, if you can make an emotional and resonate, like that's the, those are the ingredients to make a beautiful soup. I think. I think there's this this one other underpinning thing here when you were uh, talking about uh, Mark as well, and this is something that I think I picked up from uh, Guy Kawasaki, one of his talks, uh, yeah, many years ago, right, about purpose and making meaning. Right? He talks about it in the context of making meaning. And it basically goes, there's only three ways you're going to be make, able to make meaning. Stop an evil. There's something wrong with the world. There's something evil. And you're here in a mission to stop that. And if you think about the, the end of software, what you're basically saying is, this is evil. Why would, you, why would you buy and download and install a piece of software that's sitting there, whether you need it or not? Right? The second is by preventing the end of something good. There's something beautiful, but it's dying. Yeah. And we're here to prevent the end of that. And I think one of the commercials that you'd shared with me in Slack was, you know, about the, the, the traffic commercial. Yeah. That talks about there's so many beautiful ideas, there's be- so many beautiful thoughts. And, you know, there's, there's so many people who could actually execute on that thought and make that dream a reality. Except all of these people are, you know, broken apart by communication gaps, they're sitting in different places. What if we could create a conduit for them, right? That beautiful thing is dying, but it doesn't have to die. We can make it live, right? 
And the third is by improving the standard of life, by just making somebody somewhere happy. Sure. And if you can figure out who that somebody is and how you're making them happy, well, I think you would, you would have a pretty strong idea of purpose. I love that framework. <laughs> That's beautiful, right? And, and notice none of that mentioned a feature, right? None of them was like, we have X feature or we are priced whatever, right? It was all larger than that. So that's great. I love that framework. That, that's a great one. And so, which, which, like, like, you know, all of this purpose and your litmus test as well, right? All of that, it's, you know, dealing with something that comes from within, right? It's, it's almost like, okay, how do you teach somebody this? How do you teach somebody to be a Bill Messiahs? And yet you've been part of multiple hypergrowth businesses at significant parts of their growth curve. You've been, you've been a witness to a bunch of changes. You've also mentored a whole bunch of people to navigate these changes like you. So how do you do this? How do you, like, what's, how would, how would, first off, what kind of changes have you personally had to navigate at different phases of growth? And second, how do you transfer this, this, this training to the next generation? Yeah, I've been, you know, I, I feel like I've been super fortunate, super lucky. I've, I've had an opportunity to work with some, you know, amazing companies, amazing teams, really. I, I think especially when you start leading teams, you, you realize quickly it's not about you, it's about your team and, and what they're accomplishing. But, you know, I, I will say it's, it's tough sometimes because, you know, when you're part of a company, there is just an inertia, an inertia to do the same thing you've been doing. Like that car is moving in this direction. There's a lot of inertia behind it. And to kind of point it in a new direction is takes a lot of energy, right? You've got to slow it down. You got to push it to a new angle. You got to get it going again. And I think, you know, my DNA was always like, I want to see, can we make it better? Can we improve this? Can we make the go-to-market model better? Can we make pricing and packaging better? Can we tell a better story? And, you know, and I think it was part of my background because like if I come in B2B my whole life, I don't know, maybe I, I wouldn't have had that viewpoint. But coming from B2C half my career, I just, I was around companies that did things a lot differently than when it came to B2B. And I remember just saying like, you know, hey, I, I've seen it both ways. Like, do we have to do it this way? Or can we use this really cool strategy that we had done at B2C, or I, I see they do pretty vibrant brands and it seems to work out okay, right? And, you know, ultimately, you know, to the latter part of your question, you know, what I try to tell the people that I've worked with is like, hey, you need to be that champion of change. You, you literally, you need to, to get out of the mantra that you're just putting your head down and doing your work, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. Like you have to devote a percentage of your time to evangelize why you should change the direction of that car. You know, and you have to get out there and you have to change hearts and minds. And you have to realize that this is a change management exercise. It's not just we're implementing a new ABM campaign, or it's not just that we're moving to a freemium model, or it's not just that we're going to put in like a fun, quirky mascot. It's that you have to change a lot of hearts and minds that just want that car going in that same direction, that are just happy with status quo and don't want to change it. And that is incredibly hard. That takes a lot of emotion. It takes a lot of personal capital. It takes a lot of grit, you know, to change a lot of hearts and minds, you know, but I think it's necessary, right? Because every year there's new go-to-market strategies. Every year there's new ways to build brand. Every year there's new ways to build better SaaS products, you know, or listen to your customers better, newer metrics that come out. And if you just kind of stay with status quo, like you will get disrupted. Like it is a hundred percent finality, right? So you have to figure out how to bring that change. So then there's this there's this, uh, this next part from change to going to the customers, right? And uh, so first off, right, you personally, through going through this change and looking at navigating this change, 
one thing that you repeatedly advise is having a beginner's mindset, right? You've, I think, uh, despite your successes, one of the traits that I've particularly admired and tried to replicate from you is how to not carry the baggage of your wins and losses from your previous experience into the next one. So if you can talk to me a little bit about how do companies uh, or, and individuals uh, within the company, how do they create this kind of a, a beginner mindset and how do they constantly challenge the notions of you know what they know as truths? Yeah. First off, thank you for the kind words. And yeah, I, I think it's important. I remember whenever we would bring in someone new to one of the companies I worked at, like I thought this was an awesome opportunity because I'm like, hey, they have not, for the most part, they haven't really heard our messaging. Maybe it's the first time they're trying the product. You know, it's their first time going through the sales experience. Like that's really important because I think what happens, especially in tech startups is, you know, the founders are usually founders. They stay a while. They've been there, you know, four, six, eight years. And they know that space cold, right? They know every little in and out. They know totally how the software works, right? But they haven't done the new user signup process probably in like five years, right? <laughs> and a new user coming in, especially one that's not maybe familiar with this space or that category, is learning, right? And their first impressions of the brand, their first impressions going through the sign-up process, their first impressions going through the sales process, that's all kind of beginner's mindset. And I just think that's incredibly powerful, right? And so, you know, how do you get a beginner's mindset? Well, one, like, listen to all the, like, every company, the, the new hires that come in, you know, they all go through new hire training. I would, as part of that, like, ask them, like, hey, what did you think about the company? Like, we're going to have you sign up, become a user and use the product for a week. You know, we're going to pretend you're actually buying it. Right. And you're going to be like one of those shadow people that buy from our sales team. What was that experience like? Did you get what the pricing and packaging did? I mean, half the companies out there, I have no idea how the pricing and packaging works. Now, if you're there six years, you kind of understand, oh, we have seven tiers and this is threshold transaction volume and this is add-ons. But when you're a new user, you're like, whoa, right? The cognitive load of trying to learn new software and new pricing and new everything is, is just too much. So, you know, I think as long as you can kind of accept that, hey, should we be doing the exact same thing from now to infinity? And you, I think we'd all would probably agree, well, no, that, that wouldn't make sense. You know, you need to adapt and improve. And then kind of realize too, well, the best people that are, are going to be able to identify poor experiences are those that come with a beginner's mindset. And so... How can we maybe challenge assumptions that we shouldn't be doing this? Or how can we kind of realize that, hey, we do need to update or go to market every year? Or we do need to think about like how we can maybe make the product more simple, not just add more features, right? Like just coming at it from a different angle. And, and also coming in saying, hey, what well, worked for my last company doesn't actually going to work for this one too, right? Like there might be newer or better ones out there. I don't know. That, 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 that's the mindset I tried to take. And I'm sure there's like, you know, different or, or better approaches out there. But yeah, that, that, that's how I looked at it. Okay, I, I don't know if there's a better way to do it, but I just took a leaf from your book. And one thing that I've started doing recently is for everybody joining in new in the team over the first 90 days, you know, typically we have this 30, 60, 90 day thing where, all right, so first 90 days, this is what you should be yeah. doing in terms of output. But also those first 90 days are an amazing period where you can learn about what your company and your organization and your team structures and your product yeah. looks like to a completely new pair of eyes. Yeah. So for me, the first 90 days are also about, all right, so how much can I learn? Where can I improve? Or where can, where can, where can we improve the team structures? Where can we improve our products onboarding? Where can we improve what we say about a feature? Yeah. Right. And everybody in 90 days 
comes back and says, well, you know what? I checked out the website, but I don't really get what this feature does. That's, that's not very good. Totally. Can I tell you a fun story? All right. So I joined Salesforce and Salesforce was, that company was, you know, was decently big when I joined it. And Mark was a big, big Hawaiian guy. He loves Hawaii. You know, like he's got a house there. He loves spending time there. If, if you ever like would have a, a meeting with him, you know, like a lot of times he'd be in his Hawaiian gear, like just he'd have us a Loa shirt and shorts. And well, anyway, like I, I join, you know, a company and I'm going through all these meetings and I'm, you know, like anyone, like you're just back to back to back. And our meeting rooms at some point probably came from Mark. He said like, hey, let's let's name the meeting rooms like, you know, Hawaiian names. And I'm sure he made that decision pretty early in the company's life cycle, right? And they were named like Aloha and Ula and I don't know, butchering all the different Hawaiian phrases. Well, anyway, you know, you're up to like 10,000 people or whatever it is, 3,000, I think, when I joined. And, you know, we have multiple offices and multiple floors. Well, every meeting room, they have to have a unique name for it, right? So everyone sounds like Awana Aluia Nina, you know, (laughs) they all look the same. And so every time after a meeting, I'd be like, where am I going? Oh, this one. I have no idea. This one sounds like that one. I kept getting lost and showing up late. And I finally told, you know, my boss, I'm like, hey, like, I'm sure this came from a wonderful place, you know, and it's really cool. But like, people are getting lost. Like this is this makes it doesn't scale, right? We have to figure out a different way to you know, name all the meeting rooms for, you know, global company. We can't just use one like, so we started doing things differently and I I thought that helped, but that was, I think a good one, just like a a beginner, someone that's coming in fresh is going to see something like that. Right. And as people have been there a while, you have to really constantly check yourself and go like, Hey, just because we've done this way, does that still make sense? Like with where we are in the state of our company? Did you mean Alua or did you mean Lahu'u'a? Yes, it was, literally the only difference would be like the ah or the o oh at the end of this very long phrase. I got lost so many times. That was embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So coming into my my last, one of my favorite questions. Um, now, while, while, while I love marketing and I know you love marketing, there's also this very real truth that give a marketer any platform and within five years, they'll make it irrelevant. Right, yeah. panel blindness to killing inboxes to creating. I think I think we should be proud of the fact that we've created an entire industry of ad blockers. No, I don't know who who do ad blockers hire to do their marketing. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the, the the point is this: is there's a very thin line between getting the word out, communicating to the world, and just being plain annoying. Yeah. So how do you, as a marketer, walk this line, and how do you make sure that you know you're continuing to give value at every touch point? Yeah. I mean, you're totally right. Boy, I feel like I should apologize on behalf of marketers everywhere to use these tactics. But, you know, I think like I went through my own kind of, you know, personal change where at one point I said, you know what, I'm just going to do stuff that I would like personally, you know, and I'm going to put myself in the user's shoe and show a little empathy. And for me, like a big change was in content marketing because, you know, when content marketing was getting big, everybody started writing it and here's my content. and but what I saw out there is I would read a lot of, you know, quote-unquote content marketing. But really, it was just brochureware. It was slimy brochureware. It was like, hey, you searched on this keyword. Well, let me tell you why our company's awesome. And here's the 10 reasons we rock. And you should buy us right now, right? And I always thought, like, that just reminded me of, like, the trade show where you, like, went up to a booth and they gave you this, you know, 
glossy, you know, eight by 11 or something telling you why their company's awesome. And I guess from my personal experience, like I had just gone through a bunch of times where, you know, I'm, I'm more like an online person. So like I buy pretty much everything online and I'll get into stuff. I'll get into like cameras and then I'll be like, oh, well, what is like a DSLR? What are like, you know, all these different like frame sizes and, you know, how do people use them and what's, you know, focal and aperture and, you know, in the companies that would spend time, you know, like, uh, like, like B&H, they're a good one. They sell still a lot of uh, photo equipment out there. They would write content and explain to me what these things were. And I would feel like more confidence and learn more. And it would have super helpful. And then eventually, like, I trust this brand, like I'm going to buy from them. But, you know, you can't just skip that step and just expect people to buy you right there. You know, we're all nurturing and learning about these brands. So, you know, I tried to think about like content is like, hey, let's write content about people's pain points, right? Like, wh- where are they paying? Where are they learning about the space? And I had rules like, hey, top of funnel content does not include our brand name in it, right? Or does not include like a, a solicitation for us to buy from them. We're just building trust, right? And helping them like, hey, these are people are trying to learn about the space. Like, let's just help educate them about the terms and where the space is going. Or like a buyer's guide is nice, right? You know, and, and don't just list you as the only option. Because again, like you're probably not going to be the best option for everybody. It's fine. List your competitors. Hey, they're really good for this. Like I recommend using them, right? You're going to build a lot more trust that way. So to me, at the end of the day, it's all about trust. You know, and if you can, as a marketer, if you can think about like, hey, put yourselves in their shoes, you know, just because you can send out 100 million emails doesn't mean you should. (laughs) And even if you get three to click in that email, you've literally pissed off like, you know, 9,999,000 dot, dot, dot. A really big number. Yes. <laughs> a big number. It's a big number, right? You know, and if you view the world as either, like I view the world in net promoter score. So either you're constantly either minting out promoters or detractors. And if you over abuse a channel, you're just minting out detractors. Like you're just creating all these detractors that are going to say negative things about your brand. So it is tough because there's always that short term. In the short term, it's going to work. But in the long run, it just has a disastrous effect on your brand. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. Like marketers, I think more than anybody else, have to have to be forward looking, have to be futurists, right? And if you're salting your own fields for a short term gain, you're really not making it fun for anybody, including yourself, including your customers. And also coming down to as as we were running through this this, this question, I was just thinking maybe we should have just themed this podcast as uh, the podcast with Bill Masitos. Topic number five: <laughs> Blow your mind. I think that 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 would have been super fun. <laughs> My mom would be happy, but I think everybody else would run away. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, coming come, uh, coming down to the close uh, to the closure, as someone who's who's been been there, seen a couple of these cycles. If there's one takeaway, right? We've, we've spoken about quirkiness. We've spoken about obsessed with the customer, about delivering value, uh, about differentiators. If there's one thing that you would like an early stage, an up-and-coming marketer or a business to take away, what would that be? Uh, first off, I'd say like, hey, this is a golden age of creating new companies. Like, wow, what an amazing time to start a company. You know, I love it. You know, what I do, I, I do advising full time now. And it is so fun to see. There's just so many awesome companies coming up. Like, so A, you chose an incredible time to start a new company. Like, you can do amazing things. Like, the barriers of entry are so low now. And I don't know, it's like a practical takeaway. I would go, hey, go to your two most used features and just add a little moment of delight in there. 
you know, whatever it is. Maybe it's like they launched their first campaign and, you know, you give a little high five, right? Or something like that. Or you just surprise them with something unexpected. Like it, it's not going to take that long. You probably know what your most used features are, right? You know, just add a little bit of delight. Like you'll be amazed at how far that'll go. You don't need a 10 million marketing dollar campaign to do that. You don't need a hundred, you know, team person team to do that. Just find someone that's kind of fun and quirky on your and your company, have them work with a developer and just go, hey, can we make this a little fun, a little delightful? What little Easter egg can we put here? A little fireworks, a little whatever, you know, a little quirky line of dialogue. I think like that would make the user experience so much better for so many people. Like, and it would be a fun thing to try out. So that, that would be my little advice. Brilliant, brilliant. I'm actually going to go back and uh, try and do that uh, myself. Um, and it's been absolutely amazing, Bill, talking to you as always. A lot of fun, a lot of insights. And I, yeah, I, 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 I'm sure I took quite a bit away from this conversation as well. Good deal. Well, thank you so much again for having me on here. Fantastic questions. Always love talking with you, my friend. And uh, this was a great blast. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Bill.